Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it has features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. Chris Wood has been one of the world's top strategists for 20 odd years. Pre-COVID, he wrote the weekly Greed and Fear publication from a different city almost every week and offered an incredible range of insightful commentary on everything from the Taiwanese economic outlook to the political complexion of the next Fed appointee. When I was at the hedge funds, it was one of very few publications that I wouldn't miss. In this wide-ranging interview, Chris talks about his route to success. We discuss the regime change after 40 years of a falling rates environment. Why government in China puts the UK to shame how ESG has likely peaked, why Tesla will beat Legacy Auto, the importance of M2, and the relative merits of gold versus Bitcoin. Chris explains why he's bullish on energy stocks, and he talks about some of his fun trades. Long Ryanair short Zoom was a big winner. He doesn't use Zoom, and we talk about how the pandemic has altered his approach and why his multi-millionaire miles account won't get built up quite as much going forward. And of course, we cover the long-term outlook for the global economy and why the Fed has a straitjacket and how the world will look as we move from this old regime of falling interest rates. 
spoiler, he doesn't see a repeat of 2020, 2021 in 2022. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Warning, we jump around a bit. We cover a lot of ground. I wouldn't listen at 1.5 times speed. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm so excited to, to be here with you. Thank you. Good fun. So listen, um, you started off as a journalist. How did it, you get from journalism to being the number one strategist in, in Asia? Well, yeah, I always did financial journalism, but actually I originally worked for a fund management company when I was at university for a couple of a uh, couple of long vacations in Hong Kong. So I, I, I always had an idea of the financial world. And obviously I would, I would have done much better to have stuck with that fund management company rather <laughs> than get into journalism. But w I, I, w I always wanted to be a journalist, but primarily actually I did financial journalism. So in a way, it's not too different what I'm doing now from what I was doing when I was a financial journalist. Well, you still got that weekly discipline of having mm -hmm. to write. Yeah. How do you manage to write a 20-page note every week i mean that that's incredibly difficult how do you well, how, well that's be, that's where the journalistic background is because i was working basically i did work for newspapers but i primarily worked for two weeklies one was called the first the far eastern economic review in which was the bible of everybody doing asian markets back in the 70s and 1980s so i worked for that and then i worked for the economist and in The Economist, I was mainly doing financial journalism, and most of my time in The Economist was either in New York or Tokyo. All right. And what, what got you into broking? What... Well, because actually, I'd, well, I nearly, throughout that period when I was working as a financial journalist, I would always get brokers trying to employ me. Or, and, um, but then when I'd really done what I wanted to do in journalism because I'd covered New York in the late 80s, Wall Street. So, you know, I was there for the Bosky scandal, October 1987 crash, the whole SNL crisis. So that was and late 80s. New York was quite, you know, that was that was when Wall Street was more more fun. It really was Which fun. Was, then. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And, you know, I used to go and interview guys like John Goodfriend, who ran Salomon. I knew all these guys well. And then um, and then I went, I literally went to Tokyo to cover the, the bust in Tokyo. All right. So my timing was quite good but the, because I got to Tokyo. Actually, I got there six months late. I'd been going to Tokyo to do special articles in the late 80s. But I arrived in Tokyo, yeah, six months after Mieno uh, started, the BO, then BOJ governor pricked the bubble. All right. And so well, I was three years in Tokyo. And by then, I really done what I wanted to do. So actually, I decided to go into the. Then I got interested in Russia, because the Russian market was just beginning. That was like ninety three, ninety four. In fact, I invested some money in Russia, and then I decided to. I joined this uh, group which were doing uh, Russia and emerging markets. Oh wow, that was. I mean, that was a very hairy time, right? In the mid nineties in in Russia. I mean, I, I I was working for Flemings at the time. And they'd very cannily opened an office in, in Moscow, been quite early in the boom. And um, some guys with guns arrived in the office and said, you're moving. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's slightly racy. Yeah, Yeah. well, as with, actually, I joined a group with Morgan Grenville. All right. Well, they were ex-Capel guys, but Morgan Grenville doing Latin America, Eastern Europe, Russia, was when the people were, were buying their Russian privatization vouchers. 
And Morgan Grenville, a long-established office actually in Moscow, was probably a branch of the, of the British intelligence. So I did that for a couple of years, but then it didn't really, it wasn't really working out from a secondary brokerage standpoint. It was more a, it was more a corporate finance debt-driven business. So then an old friend of mine persuaded me to go back to Asia. All right. Uh, interesting. And so, you, I mean, God, you've seen an amazing amount of change in global markets. I mean, well, of course, we both have. But you probably more closer, closer up. But I mean, it, it's, it's been like an extraordinary time to be doing this job, right? Mm. And, and particularly now, because in the last 10 years, which more of the listeners will be able to relate to, We've had the global financial crisis and then COVID and negative interest rates and things that you would never have imagined seeing. I mean, how do you manage to think through all this stuff? Because ordinarily, you would expect that after having a long 30, 40 year career that you would know everything. You would understand everything. You'd seen it all before. But it isn't like that. I mean, there's things that are happening that we've never seen. How do you you cope? Well, yeah, because you see back in the late 80s when the... um when you had the <clears throat> the um, 87 crisis and the SNL crisis, and then Citibank actually blew up in 1992. People forget that. So at that time, one thought the debt problems were going to cause more, more trouble. But then the penny dropped that the system was always was going to bail people out all the time. Mm. So because I wrote a book called Boom and Bust back in the late 80s, which was had a lot, a lot accurate, but it was it was too bearish because what I was <laughs> underestimating was the willingness of uh, people to uh, to bail everybody out, contrary to the laws of what, what are meant to be the laws of capitalism. So once you realise that, then you realise the game was changing, and then you had the LTCM crisis in the late nineties when the, when the when that big hedge fund was bailed out. And then obviously we then we had the the big bailout in uh, two thousand eight. So if you were managing money, you it was all about understanding when the bailout was coming. Mm. And then obviously you had the the, the, the most extreme uh, bailout. Well, it's not a, it's not a bailout, but the most most extreme monetary and fiscal policy response when COVID hit. And I mean, does this can this all continue though? I mean, you you know you you're kind of alluding to the the, the laws of capitalism have been bent, and they're now like quite out of shape. I mean, no, but yeah, but the difference is, I mean, LTCM being bailed out was completely outrageous, but it was only understood mainly by um, financial professionals. But when the bailout happened in two thousand eight nine. Then it became clear to Main Street that there was one law for Main Street and another law for Wall Street. And that, I, that it clearly has driven political change. So people now understand this, and those people actually quite understandably uh, resent it. So or at least they, they resent it's too strong a word. It's, it's now understood, and it's, it's bred all kinds of political uh, blowback. And you, and but you, I'm talking in the Western world. I'm not talking in Asia yet. No, sure. But I mean, do you think that, that there will be a reaction to it? I mean, do you think? Well, there, there, there has been a reaction to it. You know, Donald Trump wouldn't be got being president unless you had this reaction because the, the, uh, the, the, a lot of the populist, uh, a lot of these more popular, well, there's a reaction both on the left and the right. But, uh, but basically, yeah, it's created different political dynamics. So we've had 
40 years of falling rates, and we're now, we can't, well, there is a theory, I suppose, that rates could continue to fall and we could have, just have rates of negative 5% so that you had to pay 5% to keep your money in the bank. Um, I think that's probably less likely than rates going up. We've seen the start of that. I mean, what happens now? I mean, we've had 40 years of falling rates, so you basically just borrowed as much as you could mm. and invested it in, in almost anything and, and you made money. Does the reverse happen over the next 10, 20 years? Or... Well, I don't see the political system allowing the rates to go up that much, personally. Right. But w the key, but it, there has been a key inflection point, because I had uh, like when I, I had a deflationary, disinflationary view of the world all the way from the early mid '80s. Um, literally, I maintained that view until this policy response hit to COVID. So I was in Japan in the early 90s, and that made me understand that interest rates could go very low. And it made me understand how powerful these deflationary forces are, be they uh, high levels of debt, be they demographics, be they technology, be they globalization. All these things were driving the deflationary trend. But the policy response to COVID in the G7 world, particularly the US, was so extreme in terms of the fiscal and monetary policy response that in my view, that, was, that, marks, that marked the beginning of the end of the disinflationary, deflationary era. And the key thing that made me form that conclusion was the explosion in US money supply growth. So US M2 growth, I believe, has increased by 40% in absolute terms since the March 2020, when this money printing began. And basically, we've moved to a policy of what I call MMT light, where the central banks are indirectly financing the governments. And uh, what's interesting, back in the late 70s and early 80s, when I first began to be aware of markets, everybody was a monetarist, and the most important data point every month was the US money supply data. You know, markets were obsessed by the money supply data. There was huge trading around that data point. Um, but in the intervening years, monetarism has been totally, uh, what's the word, put to the side. Money supply data is ignored. Actually, economists don't even have money supply forecasts. The, the, the data that's caused the, the markets obsessed over for the last 20 years has been the US payroll data. Mm. No one talks money supply growth. And so that's why a lot of people have been wrong-footed by this pickup in inflation, including the Fed, because they don't look at money supply anymore. But if I showed you a chart, this is not complicated. I'm not an economist, but I have studied economics. But the reason inflation picked up is because of this massive surge in broad money supply growth, which was nothing like what we saw post-2008. And monetary policy works with a lag. Now, if the Federal, the Federal Reserve was maintaining the transitory inflation line until the end of November last year, they are now done actually the biggest U-turn I've ever seen in my life on the part mm. of a major central bank. So they appear to, to be serious about trying to really tighten monetary policy. Um, so, so long as they're sounding like they're serious, the markets are going to be very volatile. And basically, you want to be selling high beta growth stocks on rallies. But are they really going to be as tough as they're talking? I have a hard time believing it.
Just Although, but for now, they're so far behind the curve. The last inflation print was 7.5%. Their target's 2%. So they've got to be seen to be trying to do something. And the other point is that for the first time in literally decades, until since the 70s, there's political pressure in Washington for the Fed to be seen to be doing something because the Biden administration you know, is polling very badly on the economy because the view is they've let inflation surge. And the Republicans are beating them up successfully on this. And, you know, you've got the midterm elections in November. So literally, this is the first time since the 1970s there's pressure on the Federal Reserve to tighten. So that is not good for markets. It's basically, I'm calling it the inverse of Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we yeah. Need, a, need, a, need a term for that. That's yeah. quite, I, I like that. The, the, the problem they've got, though, is that they can't really use interest rates as a tool to control inflation because they've got so much debt. I mean... Well, no, they're in a box. Yeah. So, but, yeah, so to me, they're going to end up um, imposing some form of financial repression. So I don't believe the rates are really going to, you know, go up. But I'm assuming that for now they're talking like they're serious. But obviously, if they did really raise the rates, then the government debt servicing requirements would become too extreme. And that's the case everywhere. I mean, it's not... Not, not everywhere. It's in the G7 world. Yeah. I, I make a distinction between the G7 world and the emerging markets because the emerging markets throughout this period have been following more classically orthodox policies. So they actually have been doing the, what the textbooks recommend uh, there's one law for developing countries and one law for developed countries. When a developing country goes bust, they're told they've got to cut their budget, you know, do all the things the IMF recommends. The IMF is the doctor telling you to do things that are good for you but are painful. Mm. But if it's developed countries, then those laws don't apply. They just get bailed out. So again, that's just like the work the Main Street realizes one law for Wall Street, one law for Main Street in the developed world. Developing countries understand that there's one law for them and one law for the others. So why have, I mean, why have stock markets, emerging markets, stock markets not been stronger then? Because, I mean, if you believe that, that the Fed is actually going to put rates up, I don't know that people, they believe they're going to put rates up seven times. I don't know they believe they're going to put rates up 17 times. No. But I mean, you would have thought that people would have gone, well, actually, emerging markets look in quite good shape relative. No, so they do, but the... Um, well, last year, actually, the emerging market under the performance looks horrible on a chart, mm. but actually, it's, not, it's actually very distorted that because it reflects the huge weighting of the Chinese internet stocks. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. it's in the internet sector, and the Chinese internet stocks were smashed by regulatory action yeah. by the Chinese government and actually, what the Chinese government did there, in many respects, made a lot of sense. They just didn't tell anybody they were going to do it before they did it. So it's not the emerging market performance has not been as bad as. I oh, see. I'm not. I, I, yeah, of course. I've not looked at the charts of emerging markets X. The... No, it would look nothing. I've never seen one sector so distort a regional index yeah, performance. Do, of course, it, of course, it would because they've been absolutely abysmal. But you're you're quite keen on them now. No, now I think there's a mean reversion trade in the internet mm. stocks because 
obviously, I haven't been in China, so that's this caveat because I've been able to go there for two years. But all the all the noises coming out of China is that the regular the new regulatory agenda has been set for the Chinese internet sector. They're not gonna. They still support the sector. The new rules have been set, and so the real issue is what's the appropriate level of valuation for these stocks now that they're operating in this stricter regulatory environment. It would be a bit like if the uh, if the American Europe suddenly implemented the uh, regulation of big tech, which many people have been advocating right in the US and Europe for many years. There's yeah. a lot of people been advocating it, but nothing's really happened. Mm. Let's say that actually happened, because actually a lot of what the Chinese have implemented is what advocates of big tech regulation would like to see happen in the West. And if they did that, these stocks would be derated. Well, you, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would say, would argue that he's already been derated. Well, yeah, I've added it. That's good for my I recommended pair trade. I, I started in October of, uh, employed in October of Long JD, mm. via the Chinese um, e-commerce company, short, uh, short, the company formerly known as Facebook. <laughs> Well, that's been that's been very successful then. So far, that's working. Yeah, yeah. I um, the this um thing you mentioned that you've not been to China. I mean, how much has it hampered your ability to do your job, not being able to travel, and no. not being able to speak to people face to face? No, no, no. It's definitely hampered it, particularly in the case of China, because China, you always have more conviction, at least I always have more conviction talking or writing about China after I've been there. Um, but it's possible that people I would talk, used to talk to in China may not be as comfortable about talking as they would have been before. I don't know that, but that's what I'm told. Mm. But personally, because I used to be a journalist, I still think it would be useful to go to, be better if I go there. But obviously, I, I, I know China and I know who to talk to and I know what, what to read. So it's not a disaster. If, I, if, I'd never, if I was starting out, though, let's say I was starting out, it would be impossible. Because, I mean, we should explain that your weekly used to come from, oh, I don't know, it seemed like it came from a different city every week. Yeah, so I put, I've been putting out Greed and Fear since 1996. And has anybody counted up how many cities it's come from? No, I should do that. It'd be quite, but it did seem like you were in a different city every week. Did you? I mean, yeah. Did you used to travel every all the time? I mean, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And how? And I, often I'd be doing, I'd be combination of either doing uh, doing research visits or I'd also be seeing investors. So, so if I went to China or India, I would both see fund managers who were clients in those countries, but I'd also do my research meetings. And I would, you know, I'd, I could go and see the central bank. I could see corporates, any number of people. So quite good for the air miles, mm. but not very good for your health and, and your mental state, is it? I mean, it's very stressful doing all that traveling, isn't it? Yeah, no, it would be now, I think. Yeah, I've got used to not traveling. So are you, are you going to change your, are we going to see less, less cities on the... On no, the... you're going to see less cities, <laughs> So, um, but I do need, but China is one, one, one needs to be able to go to China at some point. So that's, that is a big, India is, le I know, I know India very well, but that's less important because India is more accessible from a distance. Yeah. Because they're obviously, it's not closed up. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, Zoom is no substitute for being face to face no, with people. No, sub Zoom only works if you already know the person. Yeah. 
So I would say Zoom's fine for existing relationships. Otherwise, I would say it's the most overrated technology on earth. And uh, I, I would also, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, of course, <laughs> the, the shares have already fallen a long way. I've yep. been having this argument with, um, with various people and uh, one, one guy on Twitter, um, I, I did a, a valuation course, an online valuation course, and I used Zoom as one mm. of the examples. Yep. And, I, and he, this guy was very bullish on Zoom, and he bet this friend of mine $5,000 that Zoom would beat my pals, beaten up retail stock, trading at EV to sales of 0.15 or something. And I was laughing. And I was, oh, you know, you've obviously got a lot of money. You can afford to give away $5,000. But maybe you, <laughs> maybe you would like to, 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 you know, have a look at my valuation work. And he said, no, I, I don't really do valuation, Steve. He said, um, I just look at the company and say, is it going to be bigger in five years' time? Zoom at the time with a market capitalization of $170 billion. And that, to me, encapsulated the, the sort of the craziness mm. that, we, that, that we saw um, in the middle but, of the pandemic. I mean, but for a time there, Zoom became part of the language, like Google. So that is worth, I mean, in the short term, that's worth a lot of money. But the reality is you're having a conference call with someone. Let's say you don't really know them. But let's say you're going through a presentation. Actually, it's a more efficient way to do the presentation, to be on an old-fashioned landline and everybody looking at the presentation than having the distraction of Zoom because you're looking at charts. It's, it's actually, to my, in my view, it's a distraction. Oh, really? That's interesting. I, don't, I, I really don't think it's efficient. I think it's much more efficient. I think an old-fashioned landline is 10 times more efficient. That's interesting. I've not heard that you before and you're obviously somebody that does a lot of presentations no, so. many no unless there's a reason i will do it on a telephone oh, okay so um, yeah because it's got you know, i haven't got the distraction of the technology in the work i mean i don't need to look at you know i'm, I'm talking about economics it's not it's not a fashion parade but you do need to look at the charge right yeah that's interesting that's interesting well we'll maybe come back to zoom and 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 travel Although I should just add, I mean, are you still based in Hong Kong? Yeah, but that's, I've been a lot of the, yeah, that's been a real problem because I have, I, um, Asia's been basically closed. Yeah. So I've spent much more time in Europe as a result of this pandemic. So I was last in Hong Kong in October. All right. Where, but you have to do the quarantine, but I luckily managed to only do two weeks. But, but it's a nightmare, isn't it? No, for, no, no, for people who are stuck, it's, it's a golden prison. So, I mean, that's going to, permanently impair the opportunities for Hong Kong, isn't it? I mean, well, if, the Peru, if the Peru decide, the CEO decides to relocate to Singapore and not Hong Kong, I mean... Is well, that... they will, but the, but the reality is Hong Kong's a far more efficient place to operate than Singapore historically. Yeah. And the people, are, I mean, that work ethic in Hong Kong is very, is, is huge. It's a highly efficient place. So I personally don't think it's the end of Hong Kong, but many people think that. So what will happen is many expats will leave, but they will be replaced by mainlanders. Mm. And so long as Hong Kong has a closed, sorry, as long as China's a closed capital account, which it does, um, Hong Kong will play a critical role. No, that's interesting. Well, um, what about China? I mean, we've talked about the, the Internet stocks. I mean, interestingly, I, I'm quite curious, Charlie Munger buying Alibaba because he seems to have bought the U.S. quote in Alibaba, which seem, seems to me highly risky because yeah, this person, could still yeah. be repatriated, right? Well, well, to me, if you're going to buy Alibaba, I would recommend, I mean, to, Alibaba looks quite relatively cheap now. So I, yeah, can see what, yeah. so I can understand exactly why he's buying it. Um, 
But personally, I would recommend people to buy Alibaba created in Hong Kong. Yeah, no, that, that, that seemed like mm. the more sensible thing to do. Mm. I just didn't, I didn't get the... And there's a potential positive catalyst for Alibaba because Ali, any, at any time, China could announce that it's going to allow Alibaba into the Hong Kong Stock Connect. Mm. If that happens, it means that mainland investors will, for the first time, be able to buy Alibaba through what they call the southbound route. Yeah. No, that, that, would, has, that, that is, will be hugely positive. That has yet to happen. Yes, well, well, we'll see. Now, one of the things you wrote was that gold's underperformance was one of the biggest surprises last, last year. year. Yeah, because we had such negative rates. So what, why is gold not going up? I asked this question, so a month ago, Dylan Grice was in exactly this seat because mm. we did it in, in person, and I asked him exactly the same question. And once you've answered, I'll tell you what he told me. Well, first of all, gold had a good move the year before. Yeah. So you could say it's part, partly discounted that. But also, I personally think some of the money went into the crypto stuff that was, was in, would have gone into gold because actually Bitcoin is an alternative narrative for gold. And the reality is that millennials are going to buy crypto and not buy gold. Mm. Um, but, but what's encouraging right now, what is encouraging there about gold, it never broke the 1700, 1750 level, which to me would have, um, would have been worrying on a chart. And what's encouraging right now, we've got, this, we've got all these economists, all these economists who are saying no rate hikes forever last year, and now competing to who can, who can forecast the most rate hikes in 2022. And what's encouraging is that gold has barely, um, gold's actually gone up. So the interesting point right now is, is gold going up because of this Ukraine nonsense, or is it going up for some other reason? So it's going to be very interesting. If and when this Ukraine issue is resolved, um, it will be interesting to see, does gold correct on that? Because I'm not, if it's going up just because of Ukraine, that's less positive. No, no, sure. That's a, 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 something in obviously could color people's opinions. Although I'm not sure that, I mean, you would imagine that if people, if the market really thought that there was going to be uh, a war in, in Ukraine, that the ruble would have collapsed already, and it hasn't. No, no. So I'm hoping gold's going up for other reasons. It's yeah. just you've got this Ukraine thing. Um, but I'm expecting some sort of resolution on this Ukraine dispute quite soon. So that's why I'd be interesting to see how gold behaves. If gold doesn't correct sharply on when the Ukraine issue is resolved, there's two investment bullish. clues. One, very bullish for gold. And two, people should be buying Russian. People who believe my view on Ukraine should be buying Russian equities now. Yeah, it's one of these things. You know, I can only do it when I really can't bear to do it. So you really and, mm. and I can kind of see the, the logic of it. But um, I, I'm still... I'm still sort of on the fence. I, I, I think I should probably buy some Russia. But uh, we don't want to get into these short-term stuff um, yeah. for too much. But Bitcoin, and by the way, Dylan Grice said he had no idea why gold hadn't gone up. He said it should have gone up. But no, so there were a chart. If you just chart, chart of gold with negative rates. Should be better. Should be, no, listen, it's a big deal. I completely agree with him. Yeah. But I can't see. I, I'm surely sure some money went from gold to Bitcoin. So you've actually allocated part of your mm. portfolio to Bitcoin. I'm really curious about that. No, I mean, I think I understand why you did it, 
But what I'm curious about is what's been the reaction of the professional investors? Do you speak to some of the most powerful people, professional investors in the world? I mean, what? No, I think some of those guys have bought Bitcoin. Because you see anybody, if you're a free, if you're kind of a free market guy who believes in capitalism, it's, it's quite clear to people like that, which obviously many of these guys, that, that the system's been uh, kind of uh, corrupted, right? The central, and the central banks aren't basically so, or corrupt is too strong a word, but you've got these sort of MMT-like policies. Mm. So therefore, Bitcoin, if you believe the Bitcoin formula, the halving, if you believe that has real integrity, then you should be interested in Bitcoin because actually it's got a more supply-constrained dynamic than, uh, than gold. Um, and what I, I taught, taught to take Bitcoin seriously when a, uh, somebody I knew told me, he, he asked his mass, um, his mass professor university to go through the Bitcoin formula to see if it had real integrity. And the guy concluded it did unless somebody controlled more than 50% of the Bitcoin. So then this mass uh, professor went out and bought the Bitcoin. That was several years ago. So I think, <clears throat> so I think it really does have that store of value aspect. That's one point. Two, it looks like it's going to be regulatory allowed to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very hard for the governments to kill it anyway, but it, it makes it a lot more easier if it's not being regulated out of existence. And three, the reason I put it in my, originally put it in my portfolio, because I did that only when it became possible for institutions to buy Bitcoin, because clearing arrangements, custody arrangements were set up. Before that, it was impossible for an institution to buy Bitcoin. And you had that hacking risk. And the fourth reason is the demographic one, that it may be the case that millennials will just never buy gold. No, that's <laughs> absolutely true. Well, we so can ask Henry, the sound engineer. Yeah, yeah. We'll nah, ask him afterwards. Yeah, but they, well, they may buy gold, but for a period, they're not going to buy gold. And they're probably not going to buy gold mining stocks because a lot of millennials have, you know, these more green orientated views about mining companies. Oh, yeah, of course. As yes. you know. So the... Um, <laughs> but when you put that in that allocation, did you get lots of inbound calls from people saying, you know, what are you doing? How do we... No, move? no. No, no. Everybody was everybody was on side with it. And... Well, not everyone. No, sorry, but but so it went up a lot very quickly afterwards. So that well, that, that was you though. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, no, because I just reduced a very big gold allocation source on Bitcoin. Now, if I sold all the gold and put it all in Bitcoin, but I wouldn't do that. But the because obviously gold's got the test of history. But. Have your clients said to you, I've bought some Bitcoin and I'm feeling really comfortable? I mean, is it part of the debate you're having with them? Or is no, it but right now, but right now with this monetary tightening going on, you know, anybody owning crypto assets out there, they should understand that all their crypto assets have got downside risk mm. while these guys are claiming to be tightening monetary policy. I mean, they for real tighten monetary policy, for real, you know, then you know the, all the, the all this stuff is vulnerable. But just everything's like, horrible. Just, just like high, you know, high biotech stocks are vulnerable, and high P digital, digital futuristic plays are vulnerable. While they may be very good long-term stories, all these guys, all this stuff is vulnerable. But Bitcoin's less vulnerable than the protocols. So if I'm going to own anything through this Fed tightening cycle, I'm going to own Bitcoin. 
I mean, Ethereum, all this other stuff is equivalent to high B, high P tech stocks. Why is Ethereum worse than Bitcoin? Because it's not a store of value. It's a protocol based the, on usage. So Ethereum's got the bulk of all the DeFi business. Mm. So that's and so I you know it makes my total sense to Ethereum, but the risk is you can't be sure who's going to end up the dominant. Right now, Ethereum's dominant in DeFi, but we yeah. can't be sure it's going to win the race. No, it's a Solana. And yeah, and Ethereum's yeah. got to make this transition from what do you call it, proof of um, yeah, to the state. Uh, yeah. So now they meant to have done that transition. I think already it keeps getting delayed. So to me, if that transition goes successfully. That's very good for Ethereum, but I wouldn't. Nobody should own this crypto stuff on leverage if the Fed is tightening. No, of course. Because if I, if I showed you a chart of USM2 in the crypto asset class, which <laughs> I haven't done, but my guess is it's quite correlated. Yeah, no, I'm, sure, I'm sure it would be. I saw um, the, um, the Ethereum inventor speak at a conference and talking about the fork. and He's highly impressive, I guess. Well, he, he was in some hotel room and he looked like he was doing something else at the same time he was doing this presentation to this massive conference. Mm. So he was doing it, you know, on a teleconference. And um, probably doing his yoga. Was, <laughs> well, somebody said, I, I, um, there was a, a crypto conference in London and um, I went along to have lunch with one of the guys who was involved with it, who, whom I'd known from Real Vision. And it's very funny because this, this guy had me on Real Vision several times and he said, oh, I'm coming to London, so we should meet. Because we'd only met on Zoom, which was one of these yeah. things. You know? So I, I nip along to the hotel and, um, of course, he's six foot five. And I'd only ever seen him on Zoom. And I, it was quite a shock when I met him in, in person. But they, all these, um, this, this crypto conference, I mean, it was mobbed. Mm. Unbelievable. And, you know, money was no object. The, the, the service providers, I mean, what I would like to find in crypto is the, the, the equivalent of the shovels. But the... the yeah, well, the equivalent of shovels, that would, that would be surely uh, things like Coinbase, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I've I'm not a, sure. A, no, that somebody's the shovel. I've got a 70-page <laughs> note when, on Coinbase in my reading pile, which um, I've, I've... When was this conference? It was... Um, Two three months ago, it was late late twenty one. Very very yeah. very very popular. Very very oversubscribed conference. And you see, well, Powell made his admission on inflation not being transitory on November thirtieth. All right, I'm not sure. So it was, yeah, yes, yeah, so probably yeah, coincided with that. <laughs> Could have done. Um, the MMT light. You said. I mean, MMT is it madness? I mean. Are you? No, I don't agree with MMT, but the reality is, is a, there's a lot of there's a powerful political lobby that does believe in it, or or, or at least believes in a sort of MMT light pole. But what it means in reality, just what it means in practical reality, political reality, is that the central bank just becomes an instrument of the treasury, yeah, or of whatever the financing arm of the government, yeah, and so central bankers will be rendered as just um, puppets, puppets. Which isn't good, right? Well, frankly, they've been puppets already. <laughs> they're just not being. They're just not being. Um, no puppets. To, they haven't been independent for many years. 
No, I suppose that's... But actually, they believe, but I think they believe what they were saying. But the difference about MMT is you now have people explicitly advocating it. And, but, their, but their line was that MMT wouldn't be inflationary. But actually, given the current inflation surge, they're on the back foot. And do you think that they'll lose credibility as a result? Because that, the, it seems to me that... Well, that's possible. That's possible, yeah. It seems, you know, people like Stephanie Kelton just haven't been challenged. And, you know, it seems like a lot of nonsense being spouted. And yeah, but the very fact that uh, the Fed is now talking orthodox hmm. means that, yeah, they, they'll turn their, their back on this MMT stuff. But the trouble is when the pip starts squeaking and um, when they start raising rates, the all-important question is, does the Fed do another U-turn? So a cynic like me will be assuming they're going to do a U-turn. But right now, they're, they're, they're talking not only about rate hikes, but, but re, re, contracting the balance sheet. The market will not want to do, The market will be is spooked by quantitative tightening. And what freaked the markets out at the start of this year were the Fed minutes at the beginning of January revealed to the surprise of the market, and also, frankly, to the surprise of me and most fund managers, that the Fed was contemplating bringing, you know, quantitative tightening forward in time. That was not expected. So, so for now, if they, if they continue like this, then we should expect credit spreads to rise, which is already happening, or started to happen. And, the, and I think the U.S. economy will be quite resilient for the, for the moment in the face of higher rates because people have received a lot of money in transfer payments and wages are rising. The question is, what kind of what kind of problems out of the financial world are going to come, uh, appear when rates start rising and they start reducing the balance sheet? Because there's all this hidden leverage. There's all this hidden. There's all this hidden leverage, and you won't see it unless. But once they start tightening, this will start to come out, and that's what could short circuit the whole process. Any clues as to where we should be looking for that hidden leverage and where? Well, the it's pressure? in all this, probably in all this private private world. So it's, um, it's not in the stock market, in the private private equity. Yeah, all this stuff yeah. which people have been pouring money into, and which is completely non-transparent, and is not marked to market daily. So if you're in the world of private equity, as opposed to a fund manager dealing or a hedge fund guy dealing in listed securities, you've got a huge advantage because your portfolio is not marked to market every day. Sure. So, yeah, that's, so I think that's the real issue. What emerges out of the um, financial world if these guys really start tightening? But, the, the, I mean, when they get to three percent, for I mean, where do you think they're going to stop? Where where do you think they're going to go? No, I think the pits. I think things are going to start moving long before that. Oh, really? Yeah. But if but let's say I'm wrong. Let's say the let's say the you know they're really they're really serious and they realise they've messed up and inflation's coming back and they really want to do something about it. So let's just be charitable, right? So then I think I would define meaningful monetary tightening as raising rates to three percent. Mm -hmm and contracting the balance sheet back to where it was pre-pandemic, which would be going, I'm talking Fed balance sheet, mm -hmm. which would be basically going from nine trillion to six trillion. 
I mean, that's still a big balance sheet, but would have to be fair. That would be meaningful monetary tightening. Yeah. Now, let's be conservative and say, because the base effect on inflation should start getting better from the March data, which will be announced April. So if you wanted to be optimistic, you could say maybe inflation's as low as 3% by year end, year on year. Mm -hmm. But if they raise rates six times, let's say, which is 150 basis points. So on the current market expectations, they're going to raise rates to 1.5%. And inflation's going to, you know, federal funds rate one and a half percent, but we've got inflation three percent year on year. You know, that's that's still negative rates. But it, but I would say the balance sheet issue is as important as the rate hikes. Yeah, but in your scenario, stock markets will be good again. Yeah, but I'm not going to. You have to wait for what they say because I, I might I might be wrong because actually I wasn't expecting the Fed to be. Uh, there's no way I was expecting the Fed to move balance sheet contraction up the agenda. So it tells me there are some Fed governors who actually do really want to try and clean things up. But all I'm saying is they're going to get a lot of political pushback. For now, the politicians want them to be seen to be doing something. Yes. But that's not going to last. Well, so right now, what you want to own is, you know, the key thing you want to own right now, you should already own it, but you have to own cyclical stocks. But if you're going to own one thing, you have to own energy stocks. Yeah. Well, you're very bullish about oil. Right? Yeah, because oil, and it's because it's the perverse consequence. The reason oil is ex- going to explode in price further, it already has gone up a lot, is the perverse consequence of the political attack on fossil fuels, which has been obviously, um, obviously explode, been mounting in recent years. And the reason that's had the perverse consequence of causing... Uh, people producing oil not to invest in oil because all the political signals have been not to invest in oil. And the problem is, as of 2020, which is the last year we have data for, 83% of world energy consumption was for fossil fuels. Mm. So you have this extraordinary situation where people are, where people are trying to uh, accelerate this transition when we're not ready for the transition. I listened to an interesting podcast with a guy called Luke Groman, who publishes something called Forest for the Trees. And he's a really smart guy. He's a bit of a conspiracy theorist sometimes, you know. But he was saying, why is it that, you know, Mercedes are talking about having 30 electric cars by 2026, Audi going fully electric, GM having a huge range? He says, when you think about the difficulty of transitioning from a combustion engine to an EV, it's a completely different supply chain. This is like a mammoth undertaking. No, no, it's all been been forced on them by political incentives, by a combination of sticks and carrots. So, so, but yeah, I completely agree. It's a highly risky strategy, hugely important industry for Germany, huge component supply industry in Germany. I think it's, I think it's insane. And the, I'm not saying the EVs are insane. I'm saying, the company should be left to decide if they want to do that themselves. But to create all these sticks and carrots, and you, it's a, you can't be sure that a company, a trans, what's the word, a legacy automaker, has the skill set to build an EV. Well, they think they do actually. Yeah, but fair. yeah, but right. you can't be sure. What you can be sure of is that Tesla. You know, Tesla is has been only focused on the EV. So Tesla's got a better chance of success than these other guys. It's just common sense because they're prepared. 
because Tesla, so far as I understand it, is integrating hardware and software in a much more natural way, right? Because yeah. it's starting from a ground zero. Also, Tesla has this massive advantage. Well, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert. I did used to cover the auto sector many years ago. But my understanding is Tesla doesn't, isn't going to use any dealer network. And that's it. That's revolutionary in the auto sector. All auto companies have dealer networks. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's going to happen is every legacy automaker in the next two years is going to come up with an extraordinary number of electric vehicle products. And the risk is they all come up with too many. The customer's confused. <coughs> Tesla's just going to stand out. So the issue for Tesla is can it come up with a successful volume product? It's obviously it's already come up with this obviously successful high end products, yeah. And medium end, I mean the, the Model Three is not that. Yeah, so I've never met anybody who didn't like their Tesla. So I have to say that's so that if that's the if that continues to be the case, then actually the customers are the brand ambassadors for Tesla, right? Well, th there are people. My my neighbor's Tesla decided to go for a walk on its own. Oh, interesting. <laughs> he, he got out of the car. There was, a, there was a traffic jam. He got out of the car to look, and the car started going. And he was, like, running back to get in the car. It was very, very, um... But I think, I think it's a real, I completely agree, it's a massive undertaking for the auto sector. No, I, I mean, I think, you know, this whole ESG movement, has been well. It'd be interesting. What, what what do you think about it? I mean, my my simple view is that you know every fund that can put an ESG label anywhere in their product is looking to that the big oil companies are disadvantaged because they're trying to make a transition into something that they don't know anything about. So inevitably, no, the returns will collapse. No, no, no. That's the same thing with the oil companies. I mean, does an oil major have comp core competence renewables? No. In which case, that that. that yeah, so, but on the ESG stuff, look, if you were smart and you started an ESG product 10 years ago, that was a really smart commercial decision and you'd be able to charge higher fees, you could attract a lot of assets. Right now, an ESG thing is no, is everybody's ESG, almost every fund's ESG, so there's no added value doing ESG now. My guess is that ESG as a movement peaked fourth quarter last year. Yeah. Um, oil stocks, I think it's probably peaked. Oil stocks fourth were the best performing sector in the S and P last year. So far this year, when I last year, oil stocks are the best performing sector. Um, so this is interesting because basically, what's been working this year in most cases is what is didn't work last year. Yeah, stock wise, but oil stocks. So like renewable stocks worked really well last year. They're not working this year. But oil stocks are the one thing that worked last year and also working this year. So I think what's going to happen is the more oil goes up, the more the energy sector is performing, the ESG funds are going to redefine themselves to allow themselves to buy oil stocks. So I'm also, so I've actually... <laughs> That's I've quite not, difficult to do, though, but right? But it's, it's going to happen. I've already seen evidence of it. Oh, really? So they're, so they're going to be, there's going to, and you know, it's not, a, it's not such a crazy point. So we're saying rather than only buying green companies, we're going to be able to buy greening companies. Yes. I best in class companies trying to do the right thing. So, so, but actually that's, that's actually sensible. But the, but the other point, the other very important development recently is the EU's decision to declare 
nuclear and I think gas green green energy yeah because everybody I know who knows anything about energy has always told me if you really are obsessed you know I'm, this carbon thing I've got a view on but if you're obsessed to have a carbon free world if you really want to do have a carbon free world then you really have to go nuclear yeah so actually I think it's highly significant that the EU has declared nuclear green energy which clearly reflects the French influence. Sure. Um, and nullifies the German policy, which was embarked upon by Madame Merkel, Frau Merkel um, when? <laughs> when was Fukushima? After Fukushima. Oh, yeah, it was 2012. Yeah. So I personally think more common sense is going to prevail because otherwise, if they continue with this very extreme. Uh, green approach, you're going to have a massive inflationary surge in energy costs, which will be socially very divisive because these higher energy prices hit poorer people the most. But that, I mean, you can't get away with without that because I mean, the, the investment hasn't taken place. So the oil yeah, so is going to be So short. there's going to be big pushback politically yeah. from people making the obvious point that these policies you're put stuffing down people's throats are socially highly regressive because they hit poorer people first. Or what's more likely to happen is the governments will continue with the policies, but they will do big subsidies to, um, to subsidize the costs of imposing this on people because they are being imposed. So if you've got a diesel car in the UK, I in my understanding, you have costs imposed on you, right? Don't you have to pay a higher parking? Well, I, I mean, I never understood the argument for for diesel. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be less polluting. And no, but when I covered the auto sector many years ago, diesel was was sold as cleaner than petrol. Yes, I, I never. No, but yeah, but people, a lot of people bought cars on that assumption. Because yes, well, I, I mean, I suppose if the fuel consumption is is better, so you're no, using no, but no, was, no, but it, it was it was sold as cleaner. I remember. Yes, no, I, I, I that that never. I, I never really, I never. Yeah, really but the, yeah, but the, but it's but they yeah, but they will they will trigger a big social political reaction if you if you force people. So I think the governments will continue in this line. I just think they'll subsidise people, which means big fiscal deficits, which which will then be indirectly financed by the central banks. Yeah, that, that was my next question. So where is the money going to come it's from? It's all going to be printed. But for the moment, they're they're pretending that they're serious. But that's double, doubly inflationary, right? It because you've got be. higher energy costs and you need higher taxes yeah, to pay for the that's subsidies. Right, that's right. So, so the, the, I mean, this is a nightmare. They're going it? to end up financing it all. So this is financial repression. Is, yes. Uh, it's going to be a miserable world. Well, no, well, you need to go to places where they, they believe in orthodox policies so they don't do this stuff. See, so, so, so in Asia, when you had COVID, the big difference between the policy response in the G7 world in Asia because this inflationary problem is not in Asia, by the way. And the reason it's not is because demand has not been artificially stimulated. Yeah. So in the US, UK, Europe, basically a lot of people have paid a lot of money to do nothing, if I had to put it crudely, on, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the pandemic, right? Now I can tell you in China and India, the government didn't pay people money to do nothing. And that's why you haven't got the same then they did. They, they 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 had all kinds of support policies, but they didn't just do crude transfer payments. In India, actually, they handed out food, literally, you no know, food trucks. So 
That's why we haven't had such a big surge in money supply growth in these countries, and that's why the inflationary pressures are not so great. China actually tightened policy most of last year. But obviously, the China's, the China's focus was on actually trying to control the pandemic with these very aggressive lockdowns, but not on paying people. Yeah. So it's, a very, it's a very different approach. Yeah. And they've had much more control over the pandemic in, in Asia. They've had so. much more control. And so up till now, it's been very successful. Chinese polls show that the Chinese government's trusted by the population. I mean, that's just, you know, people don't want to hear that in the West, but that's the reality. But I would say the President Xi's now got a really difficult decision to make because he's invest, his political capital has increased dramatically mm. domestically by the perception that he, China's controlled the COVID better. There's far few people dead than in the West. So that, but the, his problem is right now that we've got this Omnicon variant. Everything we've learned about Omnicon in the last two months in the West makes you question whether the Chinese policy is practical with Omnicon in terms of suppressing local outbreaks because it's so highly infectious, spreads so easily, and you, a lot of people don't even have any symptoms. And it's not very dangerous. And so it's not very thing. dangerous. Yeah, so so yeah. he's got a real decision to make, which I think, you know, the decision time is coming because we're at the end of the, Olymp the Olympics. Um, because if he sticks... If he politically he'll want to stick to the policy because he's getting reappointed at the end of the year mm -hmm. and he'll be worried if he relaxes the number of deaths will surge on the other hand the risk he's running if he sticks with this policy is, is he's going to go from being popular to unpopular because it's going to have real material economic impact and the chinese people may decide that it's not dangerous it's not worth it doesn't warrant it so a very interesting development last week is the Chinese ordered the, bought the Pfizer drug, COVID pill. And this is the first foreign, foreign uh, vaccine or medication related to COVID they've bought. So that to me is a signal that they could be thinking about a relaxation. And but I mean, this, is, this could go either way. This is a, no, sure. But if they decide to relax on COVID, that will be very important. That will be very positive for Chinese stocks. And I mean, you, you're not worried about sort of fallout from Evergrande and the property sector. No, no, because that's all induced by the Chinese government. So that's the opposite. Uh, people call that a China Lehman moment. It's absolutely. It's actually the hundred. It's the inverse of a China Lehman moment. Because Lehman was a spontaneous market-driven collapse, which you know surprised. You know, the, the regulators weren't prepared for. It was a genuine shock to the system, which is why it created such impact. Whereas the Evergrande crisis, the clock started ticking when the Chinese government, I think it was summer of 2021, announced a policy they called a three red lines policy, where they said very, very transparent way, all property developers have to meet three financial leverage ratios by a certain period in time. And if they don't meet those criteria, we're going to tell the banks to stop funding them. So it couldn't have been clearer. So they induced the crisis. So it's just like you'd induce a baby. And um, what's going to happen, what is happening actually, is the big SOE developers are going to benefit from the consolidation. 
and will take over the projects that Evergrande and the other companies like it can't complete. Evergrande's been too leveraged. It's been obvious we're mm. too leveraged. But if you're a Chinese household thinking about buying that second or third property, your confidence will be dented a little bit, won't a it? Bit, yeah, but I thought, I'm not sure so extreme. But you might want to buy a property from... Uh, you might be more comfortable buying a property built by... Um, China Resources Land, which is a big SOE developer, <coughs> who stock, yeah. by the way, is trading when I last checked at one year highs. Yeah. Then buying it from a private sector developer. The so, problem is all these hedge funds in Hong Kong and the bonds of the private sector developers. So there's a financial, but it's not in the Chinese government's interest to destroy the property market, but Oh, of course not. But I mean, it, it, but it's so pivotal to the whole Chinese yeah, yeah. growth story. And but and what they gets... what, what they will be determined to ensure that all projects where companies like Everson have taken pre-sales, you know, taken money from people, that those projects are completed. Well, they would need to do that because otherwise, yeah. that, otherwise the confidence yeah. really would evaporate. Yeah, that, yeah, so that is the number one priority. Sure. But I'm assuming, I'm, you know, I might be assuming too much, but I'm assuming they're prepared to deal with this because they induced the problem. Yeah, and, well, they, you would imagine they've got a plan B. Yeah, and I mean, the, it's not, they're not the, the UK government, right? No, well, the track record you see of the Chinese government means you should give them the benefit of the doubt to sort these things out because that's what they do. Because yes. they think about it ahead of time, whereas, as you rightly say, you wouldn't have that confidence <laughs> in the UK. Here. No, not here. Mm. Listen, it's been fantastic talking to you. I always ask um, people one last co closing question. I only do this because when I listen to podcasts, that's what they seem to do. So yeah. this marks the mm -hmm. end. And what I generally ask people is, um, if, you were, if you had a nephew or a niece thinking of becoming a strategist or an economist, I still don't know what the difference is between them. But what is there a book that you would recommend? What would you What would you recommend to them to to read? Now, there's no one book on the markets I would recommend, but on the sort of more broader political economy, I've always told people to read the uh, Road to Serfdom, which I read when I was about seventeen, with by Hayek. Hayek was the uh, was the, you know Hayek was the uh, economist who wrote that the Road to Serfdom is the sort of best polemic against socialism that was written it was written in the 1930s i believe yeah at the same time as you know kings was writing his book brilliant that's a fantastic uh, recommendation chris thank you so much it was great having you i really appreciate your your time thank, thank you. you after listening to that i'm sure you understand why chris wood has more number one analyst awards than almost anyone i can think of what is unique about his approach is that he has an incredible, in-depth understanding of economics, of business, and of politics. But he also has that market-savvy touch that very few economic commentators can boast. There aren't many economists who are also Chartists, and I think it's that pragmatism which makes Wood so successful and indeed so interesting. I'm trying to bring you a really different investment podcast. I hope you're enjoying this macro series please feel free to email me at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. Tell me your views. And please don't forget to leave a review or even just a rating on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you sign up for my newsletter at behindthebalancesheet.com. And if you subscribe to the podcast, you won't miss next month's episode, which features two amazing investment talents. I can't wait. <laughs>